Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we want to continue. This is the fourth sermon regarding a defense of our King James Bibles. John chapter 3. We do not have long, but so let's go as quickly as we can. There is a, an outline being prepared that is quite extensive. And I am not going to try to preach the whole thing to you, but it will be available on many criteria that the Bible gives itself to teach us how to find the true words of God. So the first point I want to make this afternoon is that the whole issue is an issue of faith. Amen. It is not an issue of scholarship. It's a spiritual matter. It's not a natural matter. We are not going to try to prove the validity of the King James Bible or the Textus Receptus or any Greek manuscript or Hebrew manuscript on the basis of naturalistic evidence any more than we would try to prove creation by naturalistic evidence. We're going to prove it by the Word of God itself. Now, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It says all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It says through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God. And so from those three passages, we believe that God created everything out of nothing. And I'm going to show you passages that will tell us that the King James Bible is God's words in English. Because it's a matter of faith. He's promised to preserve His words, and He's given us the criteria to show which ones were preserved. Amen. Let's go. It's a matter of faith. John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ involving His Word, His churches, and all spiritual truth. And unless a man is born again, he cannot even see it to deal with it. And if you can't see something, then you can't deal with it naturalistically or scientifically. And the issue of God's Word and the power of Jesus Christ to preserve His words is a matter of faith. It's a matter of the kingdom of God. It's a matter of God stretching forth the finger of God to make sure His words are preserved in the earth. It's a matter of the kingdom. And unless you're born again, you can't even see it. We will not debate the issue of the Scriptures with a man not born again. What in the world would you talk about? It's a matter of faith. And I've been preaching on faith in the other services in order for you to have a foundation that this is a matter of faith. We believe creation by faith. We believe in the existence of heaven by faith. And we believe that our Bibles that we're reading are Scripture that we can depend upon and use the same way Jesus and the apostles used their Scriptures by faith. We believe it by faith. Now, we're dealing with a book written by God. This book isn't written by men. This is God's book. It came down from heaven through the inspiration of about 40 writers who penned down the words that God gave them. We are not going to take God's book with God's words and subject it to men and their ideas about the transmission of texts about questioning words. We're not going to subject it to that. Because God gave it. And we're going to trust it. And we're going to believe it. We're going to follow what the Bible says inside about itself. Because it's the Bible that tells us about creation. It's the Bible that tells us 
about the King James Bible, though it does not use those words. It doesn't call a single church in the Bible a Baptist church. It only calls one man a Baptist. Is he the only Baptist or are we Baptists? Because we follow what the Bible says are descriptions of Baptists. That's why we're Baptists. We're not going to deal with, the, with a God-given book by the naturalistic methods of men. We don't need scientific proofs. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.18. In fact, if you could see it, we wouldn't want to look at it. And you say, well, that's really twisted. No, it isn't. God's Word is more important than anything you can see. God's Word is more important than anything you could hear, even if it was God's voice from heaven. If someone promised you a million dollars, would you prefer it in a verbal promise or a written promise? I didn't ask you that question. I asked, would you like a verbal promise or a written promise? Everybody would want a written promise, and that's what God's given us in His Word. We have a written statement, and so it is superior to hearing God's voice from heaven because by the time you got down from the Mount of Transfiguration after hearing God's voice from heaven, you might be confused in the order of the words you heard. You might, you might be a little confused. Those of you that think you can memorize, you know, I could show you that you get a little confused about the order of words. And see, God put it in writing so we wouldn't get confused about the order of words and it's superior to hearing God's voice from heaven. And that is found in 2 Peter chapter 1. But look at what the Bible tells us about how we should operate in this world. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4.18 While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then we come down to verse 7 of chapter 5. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We do not believe David and Goliath because there's an artifact that you can read about in an article over here on the table that they might find in the Middle East. We believe David killed Goliath because the Bible tells us so. Abraham believed that he could go in and have a nap with Sarah and they could have a child because God told them so. We believe that the Bible is God's Word and when we say the Bible, we mean the King James Bible because God told us so. We don't need to see a transmission of texts all the way from the apostles to the present time because there is no such thing. And even our opponents know that right well. Right. We don't have to have proof of a, of a verse in the Bible that gives us the names of the 66 books of the Bible. We believe the canon of the Scriptures, including the 27 books of the New Testament, by faith. I am going over and over these things because when you debate this matter with anyone, you make it a matter of faith. If you make it a naturalistic matter, there's neither you nor they nor all other men combined for the past 2,000 years or the next 2,000 years will ever be able to figure it out. It is a matter of faith because it is God at work and if they're not born again and they're not operating by faith, they can't see it. Don't waste your time with them. And isn't it amazing? There isn't a single book on textual criticism in the world that operates from a premise or a presupposition of faith. It is all naturalistic. They have used human reasoning and human rationalism for trying to prove the Scriptures. How do you prove God's book by man's methods? We do it by faith. Just like they have to do with the 66 books. There is no place 
that tells us the methodology, nor the timing, nor when the, the epistle to the Colossians was accepted and the epistle to the Laodiceans was rejected. Even though the Bible talks about the epistle to the Laodiceans in Colossians 4.16. It's a matter of faith. You say, well, on what basis? Because for 2,000 years, the churches of Jesus Christ have used 27 books in the New Testament, and one of them is the Epistle to the Colossians, and one of them that is not in the 27 is the Epistle to the Laodiceans. That is good enough, because God has put His divine stamp of approval on it for 2,000 years. That's how. You say, that is just so simple. You just blow away all that fog of higher, lower, and skeptical criticism. Uh Uh-huh. We don't need any of those man-made methods. And I'll tell you, when they come to the canon of the Bible, they have to do the same thing. They just don't ever call it by faith. They just say it just came together and we can't figure it out. We can figure it out. We can understand it. We're fully persuaded of it. And I embrace it. Amen. You know how I can do all that? By faith. Amen. There's a God in heaven and He didn't give His Word to let it be lost to, to, in order that it might be found 2,000 years later by skeptical men that don't really believe in that God. And if you don't, if you think Westcott and Hort believed in God, do a little bit of reading about Westcott and Hort. And see what they thought about Charles Darwin and Mary worship. There were men on that committee that believed and feared God, and read what they think about Westcott and Hort. All that stuff is available, but do you know what it's worth in here? I could entertain you for the next few years by bringing all that stuff in here and reading you quotes. It wouldn't build your faith. It would just entertain you. There is profit in reading it if you've got the time. It's just spiritual entertainment. To realize that God's made fools out of men. But you don't need that to build your faith. We need these verses. Verse 7 tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. Therefore, I'm going to trust God about the Bible more than I'm going to trust anything I can see. Last week I preached to you from Romans 4.17 that it doesn't consider difficult questions. Faith doesn't worry about objections when God has stated His opinion or made a declaration of what He's going to do. Who cares if there's objections? They're wrong. You say that's so dogmatic. It is, isn't it? Because God is dogmatic. If He says it, you better obey it. If He says it, you better believe it. Natural methods with the Word of God won't work. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's start with chapter 1. Look at what God says about natural wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.19 For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. That is an important verse in the matter of textual integrity. This is an important verse in the Bible version controversy. This verse right here. The wisdom of this world and the understanding of this world's prudent men cannot be involved because God will not honor it. He will honor humble men and some of them, a few of them, may be gifted, but they will be humble and they will fear God. Verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? There's a textual critic used by the word disputer. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You cannot take the wisdom of this world and apply it to the words of God. We're going to believe it by faith. Chapter 2 and verse 14. 
But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. They would mock approaching anything by faith. They want to figure it out. They're the same kind of men that want to establish creation institutes in trying to find naturalistic evidence for creation. We don't need any of it. Again, we'll look at it because it's entertaining. It's great to see God's creatures. It's great to see some of the rules of man's science that does confirm the fact that evolution couldn't be true, but we don't need any of that for our faith. We just need God said it. And so this is, this is entirely a matter of faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How in the world are we going to go to a man that doesn't fear the Lord and ask him, what's the, what's the word of the Lord? How can we do that? We can't do it. We're not going to do it. We're going to go to the Lord himself and ask him what he tells us about the Bible. Furthermore, it's such a matter of faith that God's promised to blind men who don't approach it in faith. Right. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, I've quoted these verses to you so many times, but you have to learn them and not forget them. And you need to know where they are, and I want you to see them as God's words on the printed page of your Bibles. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus Christ is preaching, and very few are believing. So look at what He says. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ as He views the world rejecting Him. He comes as the Son of God. He comes as Jehovah in the flesh, preaching pure truth, and He's rejected by men. He's performing miracles. Now listen, when someone raises the dead, you ought to believe Him. When He's preaching truth, when He's the promised Messiah, when He fits all the prophetic timetables, when He claims to be the Son of God, when God thunders out of heaven at His baptism, you'd think they'd believe Him, wouldn't you? And Jesus, it appears by this passage, is overwhelmed by the ignorance and the blindness of the men that were rejecting Him. And He thanks His Father in heaven for being such a sovereign Lord that He has hid these things from the wise and prudent. Therefore... Doctorate degrees in textual criticism, ancient languages, or any other studies like that are a liability for ever understanding anything from God because He has promised to blind the wise and the prudent and to give it to babes. And if you want to be a babe, then you just walk up to Jesus and say, show me the Bible. And He shows it to us. And He's going to show it to us by faith. It is a matter of faith. And that has been taken away from this whole controversy. They can write as thick of books as they want, and they can explain one million ways in which Abraham and Sarah cannot have a child, or in which way, or a million ways that the King James Bible can't be God's words, and I'll defy them on the principle of faith, which we'll continue to work through. Westcott and Hort. And all the men like them, 
They do not approach it by faith. They approach it by courses and grades and reading and learning and reading a book a day and graduating Phi Beta Kappa and all that other garbage that God just considers words like this. As the sailor walked around the Titanic and said, even God couldn't sink this one. That's what God thinks of Dr. So-and-so. He has no regard for that at all. And in fact, it gets him irritated and angry so that he wants to blind that man. Because they fear God, they fear men more than they do God. The fear of man bringeth a snare. In John chapter 12, Jesus had to fight with the scribes and the Pharisees so much because they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. And I want to tell you something. If a seminary professor or a textual critic were ever to accept the principle of faith from the Bible, it would make his job obsolete and he would lose his standing with every one of his peers. And he would lose his job and he would have to go get a real job instead of sitting around using naturalistic methods to try to confirm the words of a holy God. So it's the fear of man that motivates them. They all quote each other. All those versions, those false versions that you're holding in your hands that I've passed out today, they're all the same. I could sit here and take hours with you and show you that from 1881 when Westcott and Hort, two unbelievers on the Church of England's Revision Committee, wrote their Bible, then the Americans took over after 20 years when they had the rights to it in 1901, then the 1952 Revised Standard, and all the way to the present day, they all agree together. Because like most professions, all they do is parrot each other. Because there is no one with courage. Because they don't have any faith. They don't do it by faith. They're doing it by, we found two manuscripts. One in a Roman Catholic monastery wastebasket, and the other in the Vatican Library. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and that's what we're going to use. Because Westcott and Hort told us to use them. Westcott and Hort gave us ten rules by which we ought to use them. All of those rules have been refuted and denied by the followers of Westcott and Hort, but the Bible still come out based on those rules. They have all come to admit that the methods used back then were wrong in coming up with those two versions, those two manuscripts, to overthrow the rest of the manuscripts that they had at their disposal. But that is, see that, you don't need any of that. But we're going to do this by faith. God said it, we're going to believe it. We're not going to have fear of any man. They can ridicule us all they want. They ridiculed the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see a blind man that's seeing in John chapter 9. And I see the Pharisees saying to him, what do you know about anything? He said, well, I may not have your advanced degrees. I don't have a Ph.D. because I couldn't read. Because I couldn't see, but now I can see. What do you have to say about that? Have you ever read John chapter 9? That's the attitude we want to have. I trust the God that gave us sight. And I trust the God that gave us the Bible and what He has to say about the Bible. This is called believing Bible study. If you're reading through the Bible and you find a verse that sounds like a contradiction, what do you do? Say, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible? Or do you say, Lord, thank you for giving me a challenge. Thank you for giving me some... I'll bet there's hidden wisdom here, Lord. And you're just waiting for me to figure it out. Help me figure it out because I want the hidden wisdom. That's believing Bible study. Other men find what looks like a contradiction and they say, see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. 
We find Ahaziah became king at 22 in one place, 42 in another place. We don't want to change either of them. We say, all right, God's put something else in the Bible to trip the skeptics up. He wants to ruin textual criticism as a science because He's already told us it's a science falsely so-called. I wonder what He's got hidden in that difference in Ahaziah's age. And do you recall that we have huge hidden wisdom in the different age ages given about Ahaziah? I, I worked very hard on that for you. I hope you'll remember it. There are three kings missing from Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the only way you can explain it is to have Ahaziah becoming king at 22 and Ahaziah becoming king at 42 and then learning what the difference is between those two. It identifies why the three kings were jerked out of the royal descent of Jesus Christ from David. Do you remember? Can't preach it now. It's on the website and it's exciting. Let Let me tell you something about those liars. All those textual critics are liars. They come to 2 Samuel 21 and 19, where our King James translators have added in the words, the brother of. They're right over here. All that's Gothic print. And if you go to 2 Samuel 21 19, you'll see in Roman letter, oh, they're so obvious. They wanted everyone to know, we stuck in the words, the brother of, and they put an asterisk. See 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 5. And they'll get all upset. Well, they weren't being faithful to the Hebrew because the Hebrews messed up there. Do you remember last Sunday from 1 Samuel 13, 1? The Hebrews lost the numbers. And we've got to be honest to the Hebrews, so we're just going to put dot, dot, dot. We're going to leave a blank. Well, you know what they do when they come to his... You know when they talk about the originals. They talk about Hebrew and Greek, two dead languages that aren't going to help anyone do anything. God hasn't promised He was ever going to use them. I mean, he used them to write in the beginning, but he never promised that he was going to perpetuate their value. You know what they do when they come to 22 and 42? They change the 42 to be 22. And you know what they say in their footnote? The Hebrew says 42. Did you hear me? They say we trust the originals. They know what the original says. It says 42, but they change it to 22 because they cannot handle that contradiction. We trust that contradiction by faith, and it has great hidden wisdom for those that study it out, if you can recall. Can a believer that meditates upon God's words and trusts them have more understanding than his teachers, than his enemies, than the ancients? Psalm 119 tells us that. That's what the matter of faith is. Okay, well, how do we, what, is the, what does the matter of faith mean? It means that it believes God's promises about His Word. If God exalted His Word above all His name, does it make any sense to you that He would then lose it? Or is there a strong implication in every, in every high and lofty statement that the Bible has about itself, is there an implication that it must be preserved for men to have the benefit of all those things that are said about the Bible? When it says, preach the Word... Does that imply that men will have the Word or they won't have it? When it says preach the Word. When Paul told Timothy that the Scriptures are able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, does that mean he's going to have the Scriptures or not have them? There's there's an implication there and an understanding that you should be able to lay hold of. 
that they're going to continue for men, for men of God ordained by Timothy and then ordaining others and then ordaining others that they're going to have scriptures that will be able to make them perfect as ministers. That is understood in the same way that Jesus Christ took the words of God to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He took those words and drew an implication from them. That there's a resurrection from the dead. You say there's not a direct connection there between that statement in Exodus 3.6 and the resurrection of the dead. And I say agreed. And there isn't a direct connection between preach the word and the preservation of Scripture, but it's all implied in those words because if you're going to preach the word, you've got to have it to preach. God is implying throughout the Bible that He's going to preserve His Word. But we're not going to just trust that, although that is strong enough if you're a believer. If you're a believer like Jesus Christ was, and like the Apostle Paul was, that would argue from a single word. Let's look at a few of the promises. Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Remember, we have carefully taken several weeks to lay the foundation. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. As far as I'm concerned, it's a no-brainer. It's done. I'm persuaded. I'm embracing this. I'm confessing that everyone else is wrong. And I'm doing this all by faith. Here are the promises. God promised to preserve His words. I'm just gonna, we're just going to rip through a few for you to see that the Bible has promised that God would preserve His words. Psalm 12:6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Amen. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. There is a promise of God preserving a plural pronoun in verse 7. And what is the closest plural noun? Words in verse 6. God promising to preserve His words. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Psalm 119. You say, I wish you could spend more time on Psalm 12. Wait till you see the outline. You'll be able to read about Psalm 12 and the various interpretations placed upon it until you're tired of it. It will be there. It's already there. It just hasn't been published yet. Psalm 119, verse 89. If Psalm 12, 7, I want to tell you something. If Psalm 12, 7 was speaking of God preserving His people from that generation forever... I wouldn't use it as a Bible preservation text. Wait till you see the evidence of studying that passage out very carefully. It should be obvious to you that if we're to follow the rule, that the closest noun that agrees in number with the pronoun is the one we go with, then that's a, that passage is a no-brainer. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever is referring to the words. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Somebody will say, well, it's in heaven and we can't read it there. Well, it wouldn't do David any good either. Verse 152, because it's here on earth as well. But God has settled it in heaven and in earth that His Word will be preserved. It's settled. Verse 152, concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And what does the word judgments mean in Psalm 119? Does it mean when God does some judging or is it talking about the Word of God? Do we all understand Psalm 119? 
when it refers to judgments like this as it does to the rest of the 176 verses, it's referring to the words of your Bible. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Proverbs chapter 30. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your word. We know where we came from and we know where we're going. We know everything. We know about child training. We know how governments ought to be set up. We know how churches ought to operate. We know what kind of worship pleases the Lord of heaven. Praise His great and glorious name. We could go on and on and on. We have a manual for our religion, and it's the Bible. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. Add thou not unto His words, lest He reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. There's a warning against anyone that would tamper with the words of Scripture because God's going to preserve them. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. I hope there's some here with with memories like elephants or like steel traps that can remember this verse from a long time ago when we memorized it as a church. Isaiah 30 and verse 8. Now go, write it before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. God wanted Isaiah to put this prophecy that he was giving Israel on a table out where everyone could see it publicly and in a book where it, where it could last forever and ever. Has it lasted all the way to you? It has. You have the book of Isaiah, don't you? Look at all these verses. You know, we, we look at Genesis 1-1, John 1-3, Hebrews 11-3. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. We look at all these verses and it's obvious God's preserved His words. But we've only just begun. Isaiah 30 and verse 8, noted in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. 40 and verse 8. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. Oh, with knowing that this is a matter of faith and having faith in what God says and then finding out what He said, it's settled. God's going to preserve His words, which will lead us, and we're not going to get to it today, though I had the best of intentions, we're going to get to the fruit. Because God is going to give us a whole string of criteria that identify the words that He's preserved. He says it's a matter of faith. It's not a matter of education because the educated I've blinded. It's a matter of faith. If you'll be like a babe and come to me, I'll give you the wisdom of Solomon so that you can know which version in the world today are my words. I'm going to show you the promises so that you'll know that I kept my, I have preserved and kept my words inviolate. And then I'm going to show you the criteria by which to judge which version is mine. Because God's words have certain effects wherever they're preached and believed. They have internal characteristics that we're going to look at. They result in men being a certain kind of a way. They result in nations looking different than other nations that don't have the words of God. We're going to look at that. We're going to realize God's told us it's a matter of faith. He's promised to preserve His words. And He gave us all this evidence as to what the words ought to look like. We've got them. We've got them. And we can look at every other version that's out there right now. It They don't match up. They're all messed up. 
That's three points out of 50. But I won't take that long to finish. If, if, if I was going to keep proportions, then we'd be on this until the year 2007. But we will pick up the pace. But this, this is foundational right now. Look at these promises. Isaiah 40 and verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. None of them last, do they? The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, and all other modern versions in English disappear. But the Word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. The Word of our God shall stand forever. There is a very specific statement about the Word of God that it's going to endure forever. It's not going to be like the grass. And do you know this verse is quoted in 1 Peter 1.25 where Peter said, And this is the Word which by the Gospel is preached unto you. And when I preach, what Word am I using? I am using this Word. I am using God's Word, the 66 books of the Bible, and God said they would endure forever. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, The Word of our God shall stand forever. Isaiah 59 and verse 21, Fifty-nine, twenty-one. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words, which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. That's a long time. That's three generations listed, and then forever. God is going to preserve His words. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, A jot or a tittle cannot pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is a small little mark on the Hebrew alphabet to distinguish an accent. It's an accent mark. Neither is going to disappear till all be fulfilled. That's in the New Testament, Matthew 5. Luke 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Well, how can we live unless God preserves those words? John 10, 35. Scripture cannot be broken, which means God's going to preserve His words so that ministers can argue from a single word like Jesus did, the word God's. From John 10.35. What advantage then hath the Jew? Because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. God entrusted a nation to keep His words, and we just read about the promises that He would help them keep those words. The book ends with with two verses saying in Revelation 22, if you take away from the words of this book, God will take away your portion of the book of life. If you add to the words in this book, He'll add to you the plagues that are described in it. That is how serious God takes the preservation of His words throughout the Bible. And I've just scratched the surface. You can come up here afterwards and I'll show you that I just scratched the surface. God told Moses, take this book of the law that I've given you and put it in the side of the ark. When you have a king, because he knew they were going to have a king, and he said this 400 years before they had a king, when you have a king... I want you to copy out the words and give him a copy of the law so that he can read it and have it read to him so that he'll be a righteous king. There is God already starting out with copies and stating, I want it copied. I don't like the originals. Put the originals in a pocket. There is no emphasis on the originals in the Bible. No one's ever had an original Bible. The Ten Commandments were inside the ark and the law of Moses was in a pocket of the ark on the outside. And the king was going to read a copy. And God has brought His words to us by copies and translations by His blessing. It's a matter of faith. The same way we recognize the 66 books, we recognize the King James Bible.
You say, do textual critics believe in God preserving His Word? No, of course not. They'd be out of a job. They'd have to go get a real job, and most of them couldn't. They'd have to do something real. They, their jobs exist by continuing to question God's Word, and they're never going to settle it because then they'd be out of a job again. So they just keep questioning it perpetually. Having a variant reading. You ought to read about Tischendorf. Tischendorf had written seven Greek New Testaments until he found Sinaiticus. And he got so excited he came home and wrote number eight. Well, now which one? Come on! See, he, that's, his, that's his whole life is continuing to have alternate readings of God's Word. It's a matter of faith. What have we learned this morning? It's a matter of faith, and God has promised to preserve His words. God has promised. We did not get to the criteria of those words, but God's promised to preserve them. So let's take those false Bible versions that I've given you and take a quick look at them. Pull out those false Bibles, and let's see if if they have their words preserved. We've worked through Matthew and Mark. Let's look at Luke, John, and Acts. Let's go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you found an impotent man that couldn't walk, would you want to throw him in a swimming pool? If he couldn't walk and he's lying on his bed all the time, would you throw him in a pool? Okay. Who's got an NIV in here that's bold? Chris, we want to hear from you on this subject. I want you to read us John 5, 4, that tells us why a man that is lame would want to go into a pool. John 5, 4. The text. Read the text, though. Does it have verse 3? Does it have verse 5? Does it have verse 4? No, it doesn't have it in the text. They've removed that verse. And they've removed the last part of verse 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And those of you that have these other versions, watch what they've taken out. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. That's the Word of God. If I take out the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4, why does this impotent man want to get in the pool? Jesus came and asked him the question, 
Wilt thou be made whole? Why did this man take up the subject of a bath? He says, I need to get into the pool. There's no explanation for why a lame man would want to be in a pool. What's the troubling of the water? Is it when their little robotic cleaner messes up the water? Is it when some, when the kids jump in and it splashes? What's the troubling of the water? Because the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is deleted. Isn't it? As you look at your Bibles. If it's in brackets, then go to the front of that Bible and see what those people mean by brackets. But it doesn't belong in the text. Turn to Acts chapter 8. We're looking at Luke, John, and Acts. I mean, really, it's strange that a man that's been 38 years lying would want to get into a pool. Is it a bath? Is it kids splashing and troubling the water? What is the reason for this? Because the last part of three and all of four is gone, isn't it? Are you able to see? Acts 8.37 Philip and the eunuch are traveling along in a chariot and the eunuch says, See, here is water. Look, Philip, there's water. Am I ready to be baptized? That's in verse 36, isn't it? Let me read verse 36. It's close enough. John 8.30, Acts 8.36 And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? This is a wonderful question. And we want the answer to it. What would Philip say to a man that is saying, what hinders me from being baptized? Who has the NIV again? Austin, read Acts 8.37 so that we can get an answer to that question. It's not there. So... The man asks an important question and he just doesn't answer it. Did you have a verse 38? A 36? But no 37. Does verse 38 sound like, and he commanded the chariot to stand still and they went down both into the water? So he did baptize them, but he never answered his question. Kind of rude. Acts 8.37 is taken away. Now that Acts 8.37 is an important verse for Baptists, isn't it? Because when the question is asked, what, does a per, what hinders a person from being baptized? Catholics and everyone else would say there's nothing. Are they three days old? Are they three, there's nothing that hinders them. They don't have to believe. All they have to do is have a godfather and a godmother. And we'll, we'll do without that. Have they been born? But see, there's things that are needed. And it needs to be a man old enough to believe. And it's a man who truly has believed. Listen to these precious words that are in Acts 8.37. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. That is called believer's baptism, and that's what our ancestors died for. Believer's baptism. You don't get baptized until you're a believer. And you're not a believer until you're old enough to have an active conscience. And he, that is the eunuch, answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's, that's one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. And it's gone. Let's go back to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Now those are whole verses. These are a little harder. I'm following the same procedure. I'm going to read the verse. You see what's missing. Luke 4.4. 4. 
And Jesus answered him saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. But by every word of God is missing. It, what an interesting portion of that verse to take out. If I was writing a Bible and taking out a whole lot of words, I don't think I'd want to tell people that they need every word of God when I'm only giving them some. Amen. It's missing. How about verse 8? Luke 4, 8. Follow along. Here's the King James Bible. You tell me what's missing. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Get thee behind me, Satan is missing. I wonder who would want those words out of the Bible. What do you mean? Oh, the Holman Christian? Yeah. Luke 9.55 Satan, get thee behind me. That's the Lord Jesus Christ telling him the rightful order in the universe. This is where James and John asked Jesus if they could call fire down from heaven in a village of the Samaritans. Jesus answered this way, Luke 9.55. Are you all there? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. The little section about what spirit you are of as being a bad spirit is taken away. The rebuke is not explained to us. That verse is an important verse because we don't want to have a spirit like that. We want to have a spirit like the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that is taken away in a partial verse deletion. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I had about 200 to choose from for the books of Luke, John, and Acts. And I've just got a few. John 3.13. I love this verse because every word of God is pure and there are big things sometimes said with little or few words. Here we go. John 3.13. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. No man hath ascended up to heaven. But he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Which is in heaven is taken away. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, no man has gone up to heaven, no man has come down from heaven, except the Son of Man, which is in heaven. While I am standing here talking to you, Nicodemus, I am in heaven. Because Jesus was God, and God is omnipresent, He's everywhere at once. Jesus was in heaven in His divine nature, and He was on earth in His human and divine nature, speaking to Nicodemus. And those little proofs of His deity have been taken out of John 3.13. And that's a powerful little statement about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 8.59 John 8.59 I'm not exaggerating. I had a couple hundred to pick from and here's a few. John 8.59 Then took they up stones to cast at Him. But Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. Going through the midst of them and passing by has been deleted. 
We love that little expression. They wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, and He was able to walk right through the middle of them, proving His divine power on earth that no one could do anything to Him before His time. John chapter 12 and verse... Well, let's, let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I can't do them all. Luke 2. Now these are changes in words, so that there's a different meaning. Not words deleted, but words switched around a little bit, so it's a different meaning. Luke 2.14. This is the crowd of angels, the angelic choir, singing and, and shouting praise to the shepherds out in the field. Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Do you have peace toward men of goodwill? It's God's goodwill toward men. Not God giving something to men of goodwill. A difference that is great. How many, how many men are there of goodwill that need a Savior? It's men of bad will that need a Savior. And it's God's goodwill toward men that sent the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22 of Luke 2. Now watch closely. Luke 2.22 And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Their purification. Do you think that you can find anywhere in the Old Testament where Joseph needed to be purified for having a baby? That is a contradiction internal to the Bible. Men did not have to go get purified. Mary needed to go get purified. But it says their purification. But the Bible says her purification. Oh, are you understanding that you have a precious book in your hands? When it says her purification, it's because the Levitical code was for mothers to be purified, not for fathers. And let me tell you one more thing. Joseph wasn't his father. The Lord God of heaven was his father. Luke 6.48 Luke 6.48 He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Oh, it was a well-built house rather than being founded on a rock. Is the whole point of the Lord Jesus Christ, my sayings to you are a foundation for your life? Not saying if you, if you live a decent life, you can survive the storms of life? Or is it your life had better be built on my foundation? There's a change in the words that is very hard to find. You know what they say? All we've done is update the these and the thous. There's no change. No doctrine is affected. Nothing's affected. Can we take your money for another version? One more, Acts 13. Acts 13. Love the Word of God, brethren. Delight in it, meditate in it day and night. You shall be like a tree planted by the rivers. You'll bear your leaves and fruit in due season. Acts chapter 13, verse 19. 
Let me back up and get 18. Now watch closely. This is going to be a lie inside those Bibles you're looking at. They're going to mess up seriously. This is the history of Israel when they came out of Egypt. I'm going to start at verse 18. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. You know what that's talking about. The Israelites wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years for punishment for not having taken the land of Canaan. Remember? Verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Here's the order. I know, it's sweet, isn't it? Here's the order of the Bible. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness. Then they took and destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan and divided the land among the twelve tribes. Then they had judges for 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Those judges were Joshua, Barak, Deborah, Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, and all the rest that are in the book of Judges. And it took 450 years. What do your Bibles have to say about that? It took 450 years to divide the land. Do you know how long it took? Five. Do you know how we know it only took five years to divide the land? Here we go. The Bible tells Joshua lived to be 110, and when Joshua died, it was all over. So we know it's less than 110. Caleb, when he went in as a spy, was 40 years old. He tells us that. When it was all over with, he was 85. And when they had divided the land, he was 85. Now there's 40 years that he spent wandering with the rest of the Israelites, didn't he? It took five years to destroy all the nations of Canaan and divide that land to the inheritance of the 12 tribes. Those Bibles say 450 years because in their haste at writing their false manuscripts and in copying them, they applied the 450 years to the dividing of the land rather than to the period of Judges from the book of Judges. Love it. Read it. We are quitting because it's the end of this day and we are going to walk out of here. Do not let this world and all of its activities nor your tired bodies keep you from reading this Bible before this day gets out. We have precious things to teach our children from this. And never turn away from the Bible that God's given us in our language and what He's put His stamp of approval upon it by the effect that it's had on nations, families, churches, and men that will follow this Bible. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.